how much stress is the right amount of stress someone to be put in a simulation scenario? Presumably too little and it's not effective, too much and they just come away traumatized. Where's the sort of Goldilocks levels of stress? So the answer is yes. And the answer, what you're referring to is the Yerkes Dotson curve. It's the bell curve that says that our level of stress, if you like, with increasing stress, our level of effectiveness or activation increases to a certain point. And when exceeded, then we become disorganized and it becomes a dysfunctional experience. And so it's unhelpful. I remember thinking, oh, if, if people don't manage this patient well, particularly in the critical environment which we work in, your patient should deteriorate and the patient's going to arrest. And then we'll debrief and people will understand why the patient arrested. And so individuals came to a particular educational session to learn about asthma, but their patient arrested. And so what they learned about asthma was absolutely zero because I put them in a psychologically unsafe environment where they weren't ready to receive information. And so we know that in order for people to reflect on something, they need to be in an activated stress state so that it's a significant event for them. But if that's exceeded, it becomes something that causes moral distress, which they won't learn from. And part of the key of the debriefing is to move them from that stressed, activated state to a pleasant, activated state, which we know from educational literature is required to retain knowledge. There's the uh, circumplex model of emotion, which is uh, Feldman and Barrett described. And so one of the tools that we use when we take people through a simulation event is we use them at different stages. So immediately after the simulation event, immediately after the debriefing and look at people's emotional effect to see if our debriefing is effective in addressing our learners' needs. And it's difficult because... Externalized stress is very different from internalized stress. And what I mean by that is when you observe people perform, you might think that they're not stressed. But when asked immediately following the uh, simulation scenario and you ask them in the, in the reactions phase, what did that feel like? People say, oh, it's so stressed. And it's often surprising because they didn't externalize that stress because what we're taught in healthcare, particularly amongst physicians, but you externalize this calm facade but internally, you're in turmoil. And actually, one of the, the debriefing or the feedback techniques that we use, we use escape routes within our simulation scenarios. And what that is, is that when a simulation scenario isn't progressing according to plan, then we, use, we either put a confederate in, a, a faculty member who goes in and gives a clue to the individuals to see if we could just move them along or direct them, which is often something like, have you guys got the protocol out? Should we look at that? Because the point of the simulation is to get people to implement that. If that doesn't help, then often what we do is we use a technique called, called pause and perfect, where the instructor would pause the scenario and then get the team leader and the team to reflect on where they are with this patient's management. What are the problems that they're having? Or reflect to them, it appears to me that this patient is improving. What else could we do to improve this patient's outcome? And then there's a debriefing almost in the middle of this scenario, at the end of which the candidates are allowed to re-enter the simulation event with this new knowledge that they've now sorted out and implemented again, which gets to the concept of deliberate practice. Because the other problem is often you debrief and then you go away and you don't have several months before you encounter the same clinical problem again. And so you don't have the opportunity to implement that knowledge that you've acquired. So, so that's helpful. 
But the reason I mentioned this pause and perfect, one of the things, there's a paper published about two years ago by an American group, which started using this pausing of the scenario thing where the learner themselves are able to put their hand up and say, can I just pause there? I'm really stuck. I'm not quite sure where we're going. I'm getting quite stressed about this. And in the scenarios where the educational objective is the learning of individuals, so in other words, people who are not necessarily expert in what they're performing, that is found particularly helpful. I was initially quite skeptical because I was worried that people were going to pause the scenarios all the time. But actually, they don't. And what it's done, it has helped us to not push them over that edge where they're too stressed. It's about allowing the learner to push the boundaries to the edge of their learning curve without pushing them over the edge. And it's finding strategies within your delivery of the scenario and your debriefing that allows them to stay in that space that challenges them, but challenges them in a safe way. How do you decide who is going to be involved in the simulation? And if someone doesn't want to be involved, is that completely their choice? Or is, it, is there an expectation that a nurse or a doctor on your intensive care unit would be involved? So I think when we started around 2004, people saw the mannequin and ran a mile. And it's fascinating when when you speak to people and you ask them, what is it about simulation that you find challenging or causes stress to you? They often say, oh, it's because people are watching me when I'm doing this. And I always say, reflect on that and say, "I I don't think that's true because we're constantly observed when we perform in a clinical environment. The difference is, In a clinical environment, we don't sit down and discuss our performance afterwards, which is what we're doing in simulated events. And the reason I started from that tack is to to identify that unless your debriefing is psychologically safe and people understand I'm not here to embarrass you, I'm here to help you grow, and it's done in a way that's supportive to the learner, the learners will find reasons not to engage. I was privileged to hear Amy Edmondson, who's a psychologist in Harvard Medical School. She's written extensively about this concept of psychological safety. And Amy, in the presentation, used this formula. And she said, in order to create psychological safety, the learner needs to understand the rationale for me taking part. If there are positive consequences to me engaging with the processes, that increases my psychological safety. But if there are negative consequences to me engaging with it, in other words, if I'm made to feel somehow defective or substandard, then that has exponential impact on my psychological safety. And people won't engage with simulation unless they feel psychologically safe within those environments. And so I guess that's the beginning, is to make sure that your faculty delivering it have been trained in debriefing in the delivery of simulation so that they deliver high-quality, psychologically safe simulation events that addresses the learning needs of your learners. And if you do that, then the word of mouth is the most powerful thing that will spread. In the beginning, we didn't force them to take part. But what has happened over time, it's become the culture within our unit to take part in simulation. This is how we learn. And so people who come into that culture are supported by their peers and the validation of taking part comes from their peers rather than from the educators because we've created that environment. And in terms of the whole day events that I've described, in the same way that you're rostered for a a short day, if you like, on our unit, your short day just happens to be simulation education. So I guess you don't necessarily have the ability to opt out but you are scheduled to do it and it's seen as part of your working because you're learning to improve your practice.
And I think it beggars belief that when trusts look at the, the rotating of people, they often look at the clinical environment, but they forget that there should be four hours of training per week scheduled for individuals. And so when we're looking at our staffing models, what we should be doing is including those educational times and making sure that those four hours are delivered every week to individuals and simulation should be part of that. And so in some, to some extent, if we staff our sort of hospitals in a way where we take those things into account, then actually integrating it in that way, I think, would be less challenging. But at the moment, I think many organizations, when they look at the, the rotating and the staffing models, they only look at the service delivery part. They don't look at the educational part. And I, I'm personally of a firm belief that you cannot deliver a safe service without education. You can't separate service delivery from education because... Otherwise, how do we make sure that we, our services are safe if we don't educate? We don't educate our teams together to learn how to safer deliver our systems. And if you follow that through, I mean, much has been written about learning organizations, but at the very, a very oversimplified definition of a learning organization, which I think in healthcare we should aspire to become, is a service that learns at the same time as it delivers a service. So in other words, the learning happens in real time and is implemented related. So we learn from all of it not just clinical incidents, if you like, as we like to call them, but also the positive events. So, you know, the work from uh, learning from excellence that has been well publicized. And I think we learn from things when it go well as well as go bad, but all the time, if that becomes our organizational culture, that's the only way that I think will deliver safer healthcare organization. And I think it's the reason why when you look at the number of patient safety initiatives mm -hmm. that have been implemented over the last few years, sepsis six and all of these things, when you look at mortality and morbidity in healthcare, it's not reducing. And part of the reason it's not reducing is because we learn, but we learn the same lessons over and over and over again because the change isn't implemented in a way because we're not yet making in a meaningful way this link between clinical governance and education where we're constantly learning to improve. Just going back to you mentioned that your program isn't made mandatory yet it's um, sort of become the culture in your institute. Just kind of linking onto that, do you think... It, within healthcare, at least, simulation is beneficial and useful for everyone? Or do you think some people, um, simulation perhaps is too harmful? Yeah, I was going to ask a similar question because one of the ACCPs who are on the intensive care unit here who is involved in the simulation doesn't think that simulation has a role for brand newly qualified nurses because they're just too fragile in that first few weeks or whatever on the intensive care unit. What I would say is that I absolutely understand, but I think that possibly stems from the fact that simulation, particularly in the critical care environment, is always implemented as a crisis. What I mean by that is when you simulate something, you know, it's a pulmonary hypertensive crisis and we all got to manage with that and there's just poo and blood everywhere, you know, sort of type thing. It has to be that kind of chest beating activity. And I think that's wrong. You know, we run scenarios on our, on our unit, for example, when we change some of the procedures around our ECLS, our ECMO program, in terms of the documentation, the, you know, the care pathway for our patients. We ran a simulation on our unit where there was a patient, a simulated patient on ECMO for 48 hours, where we staffed that patient as if there was a patient on ECMO. And so the staff taking part in that simulation all they were doing was caring for a patient on ECLS. There were minor things that needed to be adjusted. And so all they had to do was implement those things 
that they had to do, even when things go well in a normal uh, shift, if you like, and the ward round on the patient, because part of what we wanted to practice was the way that we ward round on them, how we structure that ward round and all of those different things. And so I guess what I'm saying in a long-winded way is I don't think, with the greatest respect that your colleague had said, it's not suitable for newly qualified staff. I don't think that statement is true. I think the statement is that the simulations that those staff members have been exposed to may not have been focused on what their learning needs are. So if they're newly qualified staff, their learning needs might not be managing a pulmonary hypertensive crisis. From our personal experience, the simulations are often at the beginning are almost inconsequential. All they're expecting people is to assess the patient, getting used to a mannequin. In the literature, it's described as the simulation learning curve, which means that when I function in a simulation environment, I need to learn how I act in that environment because with the best will in the world, even if the greatest care is taken to address the fidelity of the environment with the simulated patient, the mannequin, if you wish, it's never quite the same as a clinical patient. And so if that's my first time taking part in managing that simulated patient, I need to learn how to behave in that environment. What are the ground rules? What can or can't I do? Am I allowed to cannulate this patient? Can I take blood from the patient? And so taking people through a process where they go through that simulation learning curve and understand the modality first before you expose them to that higher impactful, if you like, or high risk, low volume events is the way to get them used to that. So I think I would agree that putting them in the middle of those very high impact simulations would not necessarily be in their best interest, but actually starting with scenarios that are positioned at addressing their personal learning needs and development, not just in terms of knowledge, but their skill development in sort of onboarding them in the unit is key. One of the reasons I truly believe that we currently have a waiting list for staff on our intensive care unit is that we have a wonderful group of educators, the faculty of nursing in the hospital. And what they do is if you're a new staff, you have a 16-week induction where four of those days are simulation-based education days, where you go through simulation-based education, where you're learning how to act and simple things like interacting with the computer systems. How do I do that? And so they onboard people in a way where we sort of almost safely integrate them into our organization. And so what's happened, particularly from our nursing colleagues, is the organization has got a reputation of that. And so people want to work there because they know they're not going to just be thrown in at the deep end. They're going to be supported through that process. And a lot of that comes from the opportunity to have experiential learning in a simulated environment to help onboard yourself within the organization. Again, one of the things that's quite difficult to study because we don't really have the robust systems to measure these elements, but certainly in terms of our staff retention, sick leave, all of those things have, since we've integrated these programs, have trended downwards because of the fact that people feel supported and invested in their sort of personal development. Saying you've got a waiting list of nursing staff, I'm sure will make a lot of people that might be listening to this very envious because I think that is not the norm. You must have a lot of people that have a lot of time to dedicate this to achieve that level. It takes an enormous amount of people to achieve this. When we started this process, if you like, with development in 2004, there were four main offenders uh, of which I was one uh, that started the process for our organization. And I would say in terms of the core team, there were probably about two of us. Since then, we have trained over 500 faculty members within the organization. 
So I think the key is in order for to make it sustainable, you need somebody who's appointed and has actually got time in their job plan as lead of the simulation program. Because they need time to think about quality assurance of the program, faculty development, all of those elements. And so having been through that process and setting up that and the infrastructure was a large part of my my role within my organization was setting up that infrastructure that allowed people to have in their job plan roles within these different divisions, if you like, of our simulation program. And so what that's meant is because that's set up, as I've moved on, people have slotted into that. And the successes of the program is the success of the infrastructure and the people within the program who's continually coming through as we're developing faculty. Having identified leadership within those programs is part of the key of the sustainability of it. Otherwise, it just becomes a nice thing to have. And when people get busy, it's not part of my job. I'm doing it because of altruistic measures and it just falls on the wayside. That plus the fact that once you show impact to the organization, because most organizational leadership would not have an idea of what simulation could achieve. It's incumbent on us to show them the potential of it. We need to make the value proposition for them to invest in making these programs sustainable.